Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. This month, the 7th of May 2018, would have marked Angela Carter's 78th birthday. She is perhaps best known for some of her fiction work, The Magic Toy Shop, Nights at the Circus, Wise Children, or a university curriculum favourite, The Bloody Chamber. Over the course of her life, however, Angela had a wealth of different talents that she used to the best of her ability to demonstrate her politics and her spirit. She wrote poetry, radio plays, she was an editor, a translator, she wrote lots of non-fiction and essays and was known throughout the world for using magical realism, her picturesque works and her very sharp journalism to bring her feminist and socialist politics to the fore. We are bowled over and completely honoured to have on the Vintage Podcast today feminist publishing legend Carmen Khalil to talk about publishing, editing and working with her dear friend Angela Carter. I'm uh, Frances Macmillan, I'm the senior editor at Vintage Classics and I am talking today to Carmen Khalil um, as a legendary publisher and also publisher of Angela Carter and friend of hers. Um, So just to start off, how did you, do you remember your first experience of reading Angela Carter's work? Uh, Yes, I'm often, I'm asked so much about Angie that I realised, but only recently, that I've told a fib in most of my accounts. In fact, I thought I met her first in 1970, and so the first thing I would have read would have been, I think, The Passion of New Eve. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I remember now that when I was working as a paperback publicist in the 60s, uh, the paperback company I worked for called Panther Books, which was part of Granada Publishing, Mm -hmm. published um, the... Infernal Desires of Dr. Hoffman, mm-hmm. and that's when I first met her in the 60s. Oh, okay. but she then went to Japan, uh-huh. and when she came back, I met her again, and uh, she'd left her husband, or was about to leave her husband, or asked my permission to leave her husband, one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I think the first thing I read after that would be whatever she was publishing at the time. I think that must have been about The Magic Toy Shop, right? which in some ways is my favourite of her earlier works, yes. Do you remember, did it feel, I mean, now she still comes across as, you know, incredibly sort of original and subversive yes. and different, and did it, is that how it felt at the time? Well, I, I don't want to sound um, uh, eg- an egomaniac, no, but do. I will. <laughs> as time has gone by, and... Uh, particularly recently when people have become so interested and I seem to spend most of my life talking about her, uh-huh. I realised that she was certainly extraordinary and weird mm. and unconventional, but then so was I, if you mm. see what I mean. Mm. So she didn't teach me anything in right. the weirdness department. Right. But I think one of we clocked each other as... Um, nonconformists? Yes, absolutely. Because you both kind of absolutely. refused to toe a particular party line or identify with one particular movement yes. like that, just the, those kind of rules and I, w- I would have considered my more self for you. Yeah. no I think she was more I, w- I was more hopeless than she was she was uh, very much cared, uh, keyed into the political scene as well uh-huh. whereas I've always found that a, 
bit more. If, I mean, politics, she trained me in my politics right. completely because I knew nothing about it oh, until I, I met her. I see. But, um, well, I didn't come from a British background at all. And so I wasn't, well, she was a socialist, you see, and uh -huh. I knew nothing about socialism at all except I could spell it. That was about it. <laughs> um, but radical I certainly was. And so, you know, we had all that in common. Mm. Right. And and as far as your kind of professional relationship goes, where did, when did that start? What was the first book of hers that you published, um, was it? When I um, started Virago, which was actually 1972 that I got the idea, and I made it, formed it as a company in 73, mm -hmm. um, we ha I, I knew her by that time, mm -hmm. and she wanted to write a book for me that would make money for the company, because oh, by that yeah. time she was, she was a little bit well-known. It was mm -hmm. 72. She mm. was well known, and she was award winning. She'd got the yes, award yes, the... that's right. Yeah, and original. Yeah, um, and so she said she'd write a book for me, and she wanted to write a book called The Sardian Woman. Uh -huh. She took a long time to write uh, it because she wrote it. Yes, right, The Sardian Woman. Yeah, um, but she actually wrote it to get Virago off the ground. Mm -hmm. You know, that was her contribution because she never had much money. I think she's made a lot more money since she died than she had when she was alive. Yeah, really. Right. That would be my guess. Yeah. Mm. So, and the Sardian woman kind of, that was quite controversial, you know, I and, know. and it sort of split people. So you were in the position of sort of, I guess, a defender. And well, it never occurred to me to worry about it. Yeah. So I didn't worry about it. Yeah. And I don't think she did. I was somewhat amazed when people uh, took objection to it. Yeah. But then I suppose... If you think about it, I was very much her sort of feminist. I wasn't, um, what's the word? I didn't have rules. Yeah. Mm. As far Absolutely. as that sort of editorial relationship goes, how much do you think it is about being, you know, on their side or their defender or, you know, that oh, sort of thing? Oh, yes. You've got to be in their corner. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as you know, I was a publisher for years. Yeah. And I used to say to all, all the people who worked for me, um, we are their writers' servants. Right. We are very proud servants, but we are their servants. But did she just arrive with a, a manuscript that was kind yes. of perfection, or did you, was it collaborative kind of process? Did you? I no mean, I collaboration. Know you, I know you read things straight away and you go back, you know, yeah. with comments and and work with authors. No, um, sort of all, the only thing she couldn't do was spell. Okay. Um, <laughs> one never interfered. Right. With, with anything that she wrote, they came straight from her. Um, and in later years, when I was running Chatter and Windows, uh, Jonathan Burnham was the person who edited her, and I think he right. would say the same. He's now running HarperCollins in yeah. America. I'm pretty sure he'd say the same. Okay. You had to correct the spelling, and I think perhaps that, was it. that would be it. Right. Yeah, but certainly not the concept. Do you think, how much do you think, I mean, she? I've read her saying that she thought she didn't get uh, the attention and the prizes that some of her contemporaries got because she was a woman. Well, you know, she would hate she and I would both hate saying that from a persecuted point of view. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But from a factual point of view, yeah. absolutely. And the tedium of being controlled by men with closed minds, you yeah. see. That's that's the whole problem and what is amusing, I wish Angie was alive, mm. is to see what's happening now because women have finally said, look, this is enough. 
Well, that was bored with your brains. You, I was going to ask Remove you. Remove them. <laughs> I was going to ask you if there was any um, writers, female writers today, who are sort of you, you sort of see carrying Angela Carter's kind of mantle, carrying on, sort of you know, obviously learnt from her, and and are sort of doing the same kind of incredibly shocking original out by themselves. No, no. I mean, answer. the point <laughs> is, I don't see why there should be because she mm. was a one-off. Mm. But from the point of view, not in her writing and her imagination, mm. but in her approach to being a, a woman writer, mm. um, yes, of course there are mm. the, many women. If Angie was alive today, she'd approve of um, people like Ali Smith or mm. a million writers, women writing today. Great. And their approach to their careers, or mm. if you call it a career, or their profession. Yes. And what do you think about what's happened to, you know, I mean, uh, her sort of reputation after she's, after she died, you know, I mean, the Bloody Chamber, when we publish her works on the classics, and the, do you think the Bloody Chamber is a, a classic? It's, it seem, it's the most popular of her works. It is, it's, it's not my favourite, but um, What yes. would she have thought about that, do you think, that, that idea of being a I a think she preferred writer? of all of her books, the last two novels. Right. Because she was... Starting something new in those that two novels, Knights of the Circus and, and Wise, Wise Children. Children. She was becoming much funnier mm. and bizarre mm. and down to earth. Mm. You know, she was a wonderful cook and she loved really? everything to do with women's lives. I mean, if uh-huh. you read her, you see, I always loved her journalism it's and I published incredible. a lot of it. Yeah. And if you look at her journalism, you'll see she had ferocious interest in so many things. Yeah, and that's she was, shaking a leg. That's the collection. That's isn't the collection. It? And then yes, as well. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The bloody chamber is the one that I think schools and mm. everything have, have clung on to. But I wouldn't say that was the only part of Angie. It was the. Um, it certainly was the most subversive and manipulation of um, mm. fairy stories and fairy Genre. tales and myths. And of course, if you think about it, from the point of view of her feminism. Mm. It's myths that have obviously contr- that have often controlled women's lives. You know, the myth that the only thing that um, makes us interesting human beings is our wombs. You know, uh, exactly. And, and the, we have, the myth that our brains a, are somehow yes, different, a different brain, yeah. wombs, fragile, all that stuff. Yeah. Angie wasn't fragile. You know, there's that there's sort of when she died, I was reading the obituaries calling her a sorceress and a yes. um, and a fairy queen and that yes. kind of thing. Do you think that's what do you think about that sort of way? Uh, you know, she's grown to have that sort of Has mythic she? persona almost. What do you mm. think of that? Do you think she would have shrugged? I, th- that off? I think that removes her from the political person she mm. was. She was an extraordinarily socially engaged human being. Mm. And, and if you think of it in the context of today, I would suggest that she was a momentum sort of person. Right. And I, I don't know that, but um, certainly to think of her as a sorceress removes something that took, I'd say, 30% to 40% of her life, which was her fury about the class system, the political system, mm-hmm. the way the rich in this country um, deprive the poor or the poorer people, mm. of an adequate education and life. Mm. Um, these are all the things she taught me, right. uh, about which I knew nothing, because it never occurred to me that people would be educated differently. 
a good 30% of her was that, and you'll see that in her journalism. Right. So I don't think it's right to just choose the bloody chamber if you're thinking of her as a rounded human being. Yeah. If you're thinking of her as an inventive and extraordinarily um, original writer, yes, I would choose the bloody chamber. If you, th- if you think about her um, attitude to the... She should have been alive today. Yes, yeah. It's a complete bind that she's not, because this was the world... She was a tremendous believer in the welfare state and um, the opportunities it gave to girls like her. Mm. She was by no means, um, you know, working class, whatever class that is. She was, I suppose, I don't know, but not wealthy and not Mm. suburban. A lot of it is to do with rage. Mm. And Angie was as as enraged as I am. I mean, Mm. we're both enraged people. But you've got to harness your range if you can. Absolutely, turn it into you see? activism. Yeah, so, well, you see, if she's talking about Padstow Market or something, I mean, every line is rebellious right. and radical right. in her journalism, right. I think. And that's because her brain is arriving straight on the page. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she was a one-off. Albeit with spelling mistakes. She was <laughs> <laughs> I think that when you think of what she achieved as a writer and a woman mm. you must transport yourself back to the 40s and 50s and think mm. what it was like to be raised mm. as a really brilliant young woman mm. then and I think young women should be grateful that they live now and not then because mm. I can tell you speaking of someone who's less intelligent than she was but not stupid um, it was torture really if you mm. were mm. and I think she stands for women who who don't want to do what they're told. Absolutely. And I, I, I know from uh, reading about her upbringing that it was very, she was very sort of cosseted yes. and um, closely Absolutely. looked after by her mother in particular. I know. But she, it seems like she took a decision and she sort of remade herself. She remade herself. And that's, uh, I think that's in the... Brave. It seems so brave and so empowering. The idea that you can sort of... Uh, mm build yourself as a person and, and sort of strike out by yourself no matter, you know, sort of where you've come from. That's, well, her that courage, seems, when yeah. you think about it. Going her to courage. Japan mm. uh, for two years with knowing nobody mm. and then when she faced the cancer mm. um, with incredible courage. And it seems like she sort of put herself together piece by piece that sort of throughout her life and in that last decade sort of arrived at a really, not sort of happy because that's quite a bovine word isn't it but um sort of contented empowered kind yes, of place she was. empowered is good mm. yes she was she was in control of herself and you know the world was changing mm. and by now she would be can you imagine how loud it should be you know mm. she'd have taken advantage of every oh absolutely speaking place and yes outlet she wasn't a great public speaker because you know she had a stutter as a child i didn't know no. yeah and so often she, there'd be silences mm. So I don't think a public speaker, but goodness me, her writing, her journalism on the world we live in now. Would have been worth reading. And she would be a great supporter of my anti-Brexit movement. <laughs> Useful spokesperson. So I guess that's <laughs> maybe the one thing is get uh, to take from her, which maybe is unexpected, is get out and, and She loved speak the world. Out. Speak loved out. the world, yes. Uh, is there anything else that you kind of want to say? Or um, is there any... Um, Just that I miss her still. 
Absolutely. What a friend she must have mm, been. She was. Mm. Especially, you know, in a sort of joint endeavours. Yes, being very much sort of so. Viragos. Oh, yes, and I'd love her to have seen her boy grow up and stuff yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. But never mind. We all have to put up with what we have to put up with. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Not That's at really all. given a great sort of insight into her, her thinking. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Wasn't that phenomenal? Uh, thank you so much to Carmen Khalil for coming and being her unstoppable self. We hope you'll join us this month in celebrating Angela Carter's life and work. And do let us know on Twitter what is on your Angela Carter TBR. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And until next time. <laughs>